Hello, and welcome to this edition of Secure Networks, the Index Packet Forensic Files, with your host, Michael Morris. This week's special guest is Brett White, Cybersecurity Advisor and Architect. Brett, welcome. Thank you Thank for you. joining. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, thanks. So, um, yeah, I'm coming to you from Melbourne, Australia. So I've been working in uh, networking and security for roughly two decades uh, around the world. So in Australia, the US, and I spent a bit of time in Europe as well. So the last 10 years, I've been really focused in on security, uh, working for Palo Alto Networks, Juniper, and Cisco in SE and architect roles across service provider, financial services, and large enterprise accounts. Uh, I also spent some time building and maintaining uh, large secure networks for Telstra, Australia's leading service provider down here. And I did a stint at Thomas Australia Logicalis as chief security officer, where I was looking after our internal security, but also providing uh, CISO as a service, consulting services to some of our biggest customers uh, down here in Australia. Yeah, Brett, we're really excited to have such a seasoned uh, security architect uh, to talk with us. And one of the things I want to get into to start off is, you know, with um, with all that experience and all those different types of engagements, what are you seeing, you know, with new threats and changes in the working environment as some of the toughest challenges that SecOps teams are facing right now? Yeah, uh, look, it's a really good question. And I think when you talk to different uh, SecOps teams, I'll have different answers to this. Uh, but I'll, I'll generalize this based on my experience. So for me, with the speed of adversary innovation that we see today, that is the speed of change uh, with adversaries and their tactics, techniques and procedures or TDPs, it, where people are really struggling is with that ability to prevent that which has been seen before or the known knowns, as well as detect and respond to that which they haven't seen before and to do that at pace and with confidence. And I guess to be able to do that, it requires multiple components to come together. Um, and I'll just detail those out for you if I can. Yeah. So firstly, ubiquitous visibility across your environment. And when I talk about visibility, obviously there's visibility into the devices in your environment. So what's in my environment? What software are they running? What hardware are they running? What are the traffic patterns, et cetera? Uh, we can also talk about centralizing logs from distributed sensors in the environment. That is mm -hmm. from your endpoints, from your network devices, et cetera. So we start to pull in information from disparate sensors about what's actually going on in the environment. But then once we've pulled that information together, from those different sensors or devices, we, we need to try and establish a holistic view of the environment and the incident that we're actually, uh, that we're working on. Uh, so that's really starting to establish a second phase of, of what we call situational awareness. Then we need to be able to bring an understanding of our environment into that mix as well. Mm -hmm. So an understanding of what's normal, that is, what are the normal devices in the network? What are the normal traffic patterns? What, what's the normal behaviors that we would, uh, we would see in our networks, right? And then, to combine all of that, and it's already a lot, right? To combine <laughs> right. all of that with your own personal experiences um, and or experience of, of, of others in your teams, right? And we do that through shared threat intelligence to gain a true understanding of the incident, the adversary and their possible targets or goals. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, we get to a point where we have true situational awareness. And once we have that, we can then start to move forward with the ability to respond to shut down the attack um, at a speed that's faster than the adversary can actually move. So, you know, there's a lot that I talked about there, but <laughs> right. it really starts with visibility. And visibility is, I guess, the area where many organizations struggle today. And it leaves them with blind spots in their networks. But even once we have visibility established, pulling that information together from all those disparate sensors and shared threat intelligence, your own history and, and background and all of that, um, with shared threat intelligence, et cetera, 
to generate meaningful and actionable alerts that can be responded to with confidence, that's a really big challenge. And that's where a lot of uh, SecOps organizations are facing challenges just with the level of alerts that are coming in, trying to process them and do all that mental computation and calculation, understand what's real and what's not. It's really creating a, a high level of um, breach and alert fatigue, if you will, across many, many organizations today. Well, that's a common theme. I'm, I'm hearing this alert fatigue and you know, I, mm. I, I tend not to get on the marketing buzzwords if I can avoid it. But yeah. um, you know, just looking at some of the statistics at the volumes of alarms that aren't being addressed. So for those SecOps teams that are, I'll say, doing better, <laughs> what are some of the best practices you see adopting or embracing to really help with with that alert volume and mm. some of the complex challenges you just described yeah so i think one of the really important things when we talk about situational awareness and and gaining and maintaining situational mm-hmm. awareness is bringing that that knowledge and that understanding things that we've seen before or things that others have seen before bringing that together to really be able to parse that which we're seeing and understand whether this is something that we should be concerned about So what we're seeing a lot of large enterprises do is that they're moving to embrace shared threat intelligence, both on the prevention side of things. So integrating that into a next generation firewall or EPP EDR solution so that we can prevent the things that we've seen before. So really, you know, wipe the majority of the pieces off the chessboard, if you will, to allow us to focus in on those, those really gnarly problems, the, the really challenging things, the advanced adversaries, right. But also, um, integrating threat intelligence on the detection and response side of the equation so that, as I said, we can leverage the knowledge of what others have seen before um, and use that to our own benefit and, in a way, work, work smarter, not harder, right? Mm-hmm. Use that which everybody else has seen before. Use that knowledge that they've created and the knowledge I've created myself. Share it, understand, and then, you know, move forward to, to being able to respond accordingly. Um, what we also see is that, a lot of organizations are moving towards embracing anomaly detection platforms, Mm -hmm. uh, both from a network and a user perspective. And they do this to gain an understanding of what's normal. And that allows them to understand or to to detect and understand what's abnormal in their networks and respond accordingly. And look, when we, when we talk about that anomaly detection, obviously, you know, being able to understand everything that's going on in the network down to the packet level is is really key, getting that deep level of visibility so that we can start to drill into the things that, that look a little, a little funky mm-hmm. and really dig down and see, well, what is it that's not quite right there? And is this actually a problem or is this potentially a false positive or a false negative in my right. network? Well, so, no, you're absolutely right. You hit on some key points there in that. What do you think they're still missing, though? I mean, if, there's a lot of... Mm. A lot of blind spots. You talked about that earlier. Um, yeah. What are some of the more critical ones that people aren't addressing enough? Yeah. Okay. Um, I think for me, visibility is still a big problem. And, and you'll hear me talk about visibility a hell of a lot. Uh, I think it's visibility is a fundamental. If you don't have visibility, you're blind, right? As somebody said to me one time, you can't duck a punch that you don't see coming, right? <laughs> so um, visibility is a massive problem. And many organizations they have visibility into pockets of their network, but not everywhere. So they've started that journey, mm-hmm. uh, but they don't have that ubiquitous visibility that I talked about earlier. For example, they may, be, uh, they may have visibility into a, a, a high value part of their network, but they don't necessarily have visibility into the user segment and therefore can't detect when there's lateral propagation of malware within the environment, right? They mm-hmm. just don't see it because they're blind to it. Um, so that, that's a big problem they also lose visibility of their endpoints when those endpoints are remote. 
and we see that a lot obviously during during COVID times we've got a lot more distributed workforces remote workforces and when those remote users are now connecting directly to cloud hosted SaaS applications or cloud instances uh, even is uh, platforms you know they lose that visibility mm-hmm. that's a big problem um, and as I kind of mentioned there as well, organizations don't have visibility into their cloud tendencies. So, you know, as I said, ubiquitous visibility is key, but there are so many parts of, of networks, um, complex distributed networks today that organizations just don't have visibility. And that, that leaves those dark spots in the networks where adversaries can hide and remain unseen for very long periods of time. And if you look at, uh, you know, the Mandiant FireEye M trends, you'll see that we're talking hundreds of days. If you go back a couple of years, it was in excess of 400 days dwell right. time uh, within APJC. It was massive, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we give the adversaries a chance to hide in the darkness, uh, which is a really, really problematic. So, you know, we need to do a lot more there uh, to get that ubiquitous visibility and, and really, you know, shine a light into every corner of the network, if you will. Absolutely. No, you talk about visibility. Actually, it kind of leads to my next question is, um, what are, as an architect, mm-hmm. what are some of the foundational pieces you recommend <laughs> beyond just the visibility, you know, so that, that need to look at that data, right? Assuming you right. get that visibility that you talked about, mm-hmm. um, what are some key, key things that people, I mean, you and I both know we've been in the business a long time, right? There's a huge adoption of MLAI stuff. There's a huge adoption mm-hmm. of SOAR and orchestration stuff right, right now. Um, combinations thereof <laughs> yeah but but from you know an advisor that's trying to coach customers what what do you say if you don't have one two and three you're, you're not even in the game yeah okay um yeah really really good question um so i mean for me visibility is key we've talked about yeah, it, right yeah. i think we've established base. that so yep. you know i'd say there you know three things to consider visibility enables understanding right understanding enables policy and policy enables control, right? So visibility is the fundamental. Get your visibility down uh, and you can then start to move forward into understanding normal, understanding anomalies, uh, building policy that can then uh, govern people, process technology, and then control your environment. So that, that's key. I think we've covered that to death. Yeah. We may do it again. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, another big one for me is multi-factor authentication. It's a massive piece yes. of the puzzle. Uh, we see so many breaches that are through uh, credential theft and reuse, be it through uh, data dumps, be it through uh, adversaries scraping credentials off endpoints using things like Mimikatz or proc dump against the LSAS process, you know, these kind of things. And if we go down that MFA or 2FA path, you know, this really reduces the risk of credential theft and reuse across the enterprise and cloud environments. And it reduces the risk of breach through things like password brute force and password spray attacks as well. Um, So, you know, multi-factor authentication is a a really big thing and I'm I'm very passionate about that. Um, You know, there are other components that are important too, depending on the organization. You know, we can talk about your next generation firewalls at the perimeter. We can talk about EPP EDR solutions. We can talk about a lot of technology that is required and that is fundamental. However, for me, the most important thing is that we actually don't get distracted by technology, right? But instead, we need to be driven or motivated by supporting the organization's business outcomes and security imperatives. And by doing that, or well, that basically allows us to guide the direction that we take from an architectural perspective, okay. right? So we ensure that the solution that we put together is actually the right fit for the organization and will support them in meeting their goals. And that's not only the goals of protecting themselves, but protecting 
the data that they hold and most importantly for me the the data that they hold on behalf of their customers because at mm-hmm. the end of the day you know organizations are are custodians of their customers data and customers data is then directly related to people and security for me is all about protecting people mm-hmm. so if we you know allow our solutions and our architectures and our, our thought processes to be you know really guided by those organizational goals and outcomes and their security imperatives, then we're going to make sure that we're going down that right path to support, you know, that, that goal of securing the customer, the customer's data and, and people at the end of the day. And that'll be a really big uh, differentiator for a lot of organizations. Mm-hmm. No, you hit on a, a thing that <laughs> frankly, a lot of people in technology don't hit on, which is the, the human factor, right. And the right. business processes around what people can do. Uh, so mm-hmm. kind of building on that a little bit, um, what do you suggest or what are some things you recommend to, for SecOps teams mm. and business process teams, right? Business process engineering teams to really right. help in, you know, areas like efficiency and accuracy <clears throat> and reliability, right? right? Because it is contingent on the people. They, they have, the one thing we all have, I love this quote that I've always stuck with in my life is one thing we all have in common is time. Mm-hmm. And, and so, uh, how can we improve or how can SecOps teams really improve, you know, on the efficiency front, the accuracy front? Yeah. Um, efficiency and accuracy, they're, they're big things. Um, you know, we talked about you know, adversarial innovation and, and the speed of innovation. And, you know, if we, if we talk about indicators of compromise for a moment and, you know, the basic indicators of compromise like IP addresses and domain names and, and these kind right. of things, you know, they're relatively easy for an adversary to change and, and to quickly churn through, right? So how do we keep, uh, keep pace with the adversary as they go and change these indicators of compromise and, you know, maybe at a higher level, force them to then, you know, go from changing their IOCs into actually changing their tactics, techniques and procedures, which is a lot more difficult for them to do. And one way that we can we can force them to have to do that is by integrating shared threat intelligence. And, you know, I talked about shared threat intelligence as in our own personal experiences, sharing that with each other within an organisation, mm-hmm sharing that between organizations through things like ISACs and uh, ISOCs and uh, CERTs and these kind of organizations as well. Um, but also, you know, if you want to talk about, you know, machine enabled um, shared threat intelligence, so using Sticks Taxi and, and these kind of uh, protocols and processes for really sharing uh, threat intelligence, that's going to deliver great benefits in terms of detecting the known threats, first of all. Um, it can also help us by, by detecting those known threats, as we talked about earlier, you know, really clear that chessboard and allow us to focus right. in on, on the couple of things that are really a little bit gray and the things that we're not quite sure about right now. And that's where, you know, things like MITRE ATT&CK framework and understanding the TDPs mm-hmm. can really come in to help uh, detect and work around those. But I think something that's really important here is to understand that not all threat intelligence is created equal. Okay. Um, so if, if we're integrating different sources of threat intelligence, it's really critical to understand your threat intelligence sources and the associated levels of trust. So, you know, I might trust the information that's coming out of uh, the ASD, for example, Australian Signals Directorate, or that's coming out of the US CERT. Uh, I might trust that much more than I trust um, information that I've heard by hearsay, for example. <laughs> right. or maybe, maybe I trust it a little bit more than I trust information coming out of an ISAC, uh, although ISACs are, are pretty good as well, and I'm not rubbishing ISACs in, in any way, short, shape or form there, right? But understanding that level of, of reliability and confidence associated with the, the threat intelligence that we're bringing in. Because you know, by doing that, 
if we if we want to take automated response actions, which allows us to then respond and shut down attacks at the speed of uh, the adversary moving through our environment, or hopefully faster than, then we need to take automated response, right? right? But we can only do that based on threat intelligence that has the highest levels of trust. If I do it based on, you know, TI that has a low level of trust, next thing you know, I've kick banned the CEO's laptop and I'm going to be in a world of trouble. Right. So, you know, take action, automated action based only on high levels of trust and then really, you know, look to use human intervention, human intelligence to confirm and take action on indicators that we see from other levels of um, threat intelligence and and confidence, right? So if it comes from an ISAC or maybe a little bit lower down the chain, something that I've heard about or read somewhere in a blog, you know, really get that human intelligence in there uh, to to really understand is this something that that I'm I really should be worried about? What's my level of confidence? And then you know process that, and then look to take a, a manual response action, which may be rather than kick banning, it may be you know doing a bit more uh, digging down into packet forensics, or it might be a bit more monitoring, or it might be you know a phone call to the CEO to say, hey, is this you? Are you really in Guam right now? You know that kind of thing. Right. So. You know, to sum it up, really integrating that shared threat intelligence uh, is going to enable that that increase in efficiency and accuracy and, and reliability of across the security stack, not only from a technology, but also a people process perspective. Excellent. No, that's that's some great insights, Brett. Uh, so looking out, you know, one of the questions I always like to ask our experts that mm-hmm. we get on this uh, this series is, you know, things are crazy right now. We've still got a global pandemic. We've got yeah. tons of remote workforce. If you're to advise, you know, our security teams that listen to this podcast, mm. um, what do you recommend our listeners to think about or to look out for over the next six to 18 months yeah. uh, in this constantly shifting battle for network and cybersecurity? Yeah. So, I mean, as you talk about there, it's a, a constantly shifting battle, right? The right. cyber threat landscape uh, is never static. It, it changes all the time. Uh, it's what keeps this thing interesting. It's what, keep, it's what keeps us in a job, right? Um, what It's what keeps us engaged. Um, yeah. And because of that, six to 18 months, that's an eon in cybersecurity. That's yes. a really, really long time, especially with, as I said earlier, the, you know, the rate of innovation of adversaries. So, you know, I'll, I'll probably detail out three things here for you if I can. Okay. So firstly, the first two are really from a, a technology perspective. Um, I'd be saying look for further developments in the XDR and source spaces. You know, we're seeing a lot, of, uh, a lot of development, a lot of movement in that space at the moment. So when we talk about XDR, we're not just talking about detection and response on the endpoint. We're talking about bringing in data sources from everywhere, from the network, from cloud, uh, from the endpoint, you know, from wherever your users, your data, your service, your services may be, bringing in that that visibility to allow us to detect and respond across that entire ecosystem. And then on the source side of things, obviously, you know, looking into security or orchestration, automation, and response. And by in that space, you know, we're really looking at delivering that ubiquitous visibility gaining that situational awareness that I talked about and up to those those three levels of situational awareness that then enable those automated response capabilities to allow us to move at the speed of our adversaries or hopefully faster than the speed of our adversaries. So that's number one. Number two would be uh, look for further developments in the SASE or Secure Access Services Edge space. 
Okay. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of talk going on there at the moment. Uh, so in the SASE space, we're looking to deliver more cloud native security capabilities for increasingly remote and distributed enterprises. The thing that I would say there about SASE is that you know nobody has a, a full solution, a full stack solution there today. Uh, Gartner acknowledges that themselves in um, in their own writings and, and briefs that they've put out. The really important thing that I would say for organizations looking in the SASE space is you know, do what Gartner recommends and that is have a conversation with your vendors and their representatives about what their roadmap looks like and understand if that roadmap of capabilities aligns with your organizational roadmap and how that will help meet your security imperatives. If those things align, you know, that's great and we can go ahead with that vendor. If not, have a look, you know, base, your, base it on priorities, work out whether this vendor is the right vendor for you, you know, what capabilities are coming when and, and look to more move forward that way. But definitely, you know, big movements in the SASE space, a lot of vendors out there mm -hmm. uh, jockeying and vying for position at the moment. So, you know, keep an eye on that one, keep your ear to the ground there. The final thing though is not about technology at all. Well, it is in a way, technology is a component, right? So for me, the biggest thing to think about, the one thing that you take away from all of this is that remember that security isn't just about technology, right? There's a lot of technology out there. I'm a technologist. I love some technology. Don't get me wrong, right? But security is about people. It's about policy and process. And it's about technology all working together and all underpinning each other. Because if we have one of those three pillars and it's operating really well, but the other two aren't, right. then we're going to end up with a, with a security architecture beyond technology that's not working in unison. And we need all these parts to work together in unison. Otherwise, security is going to fail and our adversaries will take advantage. Yeah. So it's really going to be important to have you know, technology in place that supports and underpins our processes and our people and have processes in place that then govern the use of technology and support how it operates and we have people in place and processes and technology that helps improve how they operate and helps improve their own cyber hygiene so that you know as we move forward on those three fronts the organization is going to be secure and we're going to be or stand a lot better chance of uh, being secure against adversaries that are out there today. Brett, that's tremendous insights. Thank you so much for taking a little bit of your time no and joining us to share your expertise in how to better secure networks. We'd no ask idea. our listeners to tune in next time for another edition of the Endace Packet Forensic Files. For more information about Endace's network packet capture platform and our integrations with our Fusion Technology partners, please go to endace.com. Brett, again, thank you. No worries. Have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. It's been a pleasure. Thanks.